Rob, thanks for joining us again. You're you're like our most popular guest. I'm starting to feel, I'm starting to feel popular. You, you want to watch my ego? Before yeah. you know, it, I'll start making drinks requests in the middle of the day. <laughs> I said I wanted a cappuccino. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Throwing sandwiches because they got mayonnaise in them. <laughs> That's a true story I've seen before. Oh really? Oh yeah, yeah. There was a producer who shall remain remain nameless who asked an assistant to get him a club sandwich, no mayonnaise. And then literally launched the sandwich at the assistant and said, I said no fucking mayonnaise. That's, I mean, a club sandwich without mayonnaise is a key. I mean, look, he's already in the room. Yeah, no, he's, he's already clearly, clearly not a well man if he's asking for a club sandwich without mayonnaise. The fact that he's then launching said sandwich is further indication that something was, something greater was going on. <laughs> but um, yeah, I've, I've always sort of stored little stories. Like people throw flipping chairs because they've got slight rips in them and. All that, all the stuff we'll get into today. It's, you know, it's good fun. Little behind the scenes. Little behind the There's scenes. a guy on TikTok at the minute. I, I um, am I ashamed to say? No, not ashamed to say. I enjoy a bit of TikTok. Hmm. There's a guy who I think he was a BA customer service desk employee, and he is just going to town with all of these <laughs> stories. But he is fully naming celebrities. Amazing. Like a flight departed 90 minutes before, and there he's telling like the full story. Oh, I want to get on my flight, mate. It's Ooh. left. The plane has left. That's, um, a, that's a quick way to uh, the the jobs queue in in my industry. <laughs> you can always tell if it's going to be if you if the, if 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 someone names the client, you know it's going to be a good story. If the story starts with this one client I had, you know it's going to be a great story. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, um, Rob. This is uh, it's great to have you here talking about this, and and really I want to just precursor this episode by saying. Th- Thank you for yeah. writing the words that people will be able to read in your in your blog article that will be going live today, and for for talking about something that's so important this week in particular, Mental mm. Health Awareness Week. And I think um, you know when I read your blog, I mean, there's people in my life that suffer from mm. mental health conditions, and it was a it was a very um, thoughtful read, and in your usual style. <laughs> humor and you know your own take on it but hidden in there is a very key story and message and we're going to dig into it now and yeah and i think um as we go through this i kind of want to have a free-flowing conversation i don't really want to have to check the words that we use so for anyone watching please don't judge us on you know maybe tripping over ourselves with the words that we use and some of the phrases if we don't get it right we, we are learning ourselves in navigating a really complex issue in mental health, but something that I think the world has awoken to, that mm. it's a bigger thing and it's okay to say you're not okay. Yeah. But also there's a long way to go, and I think we're going to dig into some of those subjects with you today. Yeah, I, th- I think the other important disclaimer is, you know, as, as much as, as we can talk about the experiences we've had, I don't think either of us at this table, you, you know, you or especially me, sees these just these conversations as universal applying to everybody um i can speak to my experience you can speak to yours and that's what we'll we'll discuss but for those listening you know especially during mental health awareness week this is not us you know sat on top of the mountain prescribing how it is it's just how we found it yeah exactly and i think there's definitely some connection both in terms of the creators of music and also people that love music where it's either a channel to outlet your emotions mm-hmm. through your creative art or it is a place that you can disappear off into and listen to your favorite artists where their lyrics or their story connects with your own and, and that's a release for you mentally. But let's start with the, with the big question. Why, why do you think... Um, 
why do you think people in the music industry or any art, why, why does it attract people that maybe have a higher indexing of suffering from something maybe <sighs> mental health related? Do, is, is it a true statement, first of all, in your opinion? I don't know, is the honest answer, but I've got pet theories, as I always do. I think, firstly, there is an unhealthy line drawn between sort of genius and pain. The idea, you know, oh, you know, Van Gogh had this horrible life, you know, cut his own ear off, but look at the art he gave. Or I was really guilty of it as a, as a sort of adolescent music listener, you know, listening to Nine Inch Nails going, oh, you know, what horrible pain that he's gone through. And I think that the, the real thing is, is that, that, that mental health issues and, and, and mental trauma and these sorts of things don't necessarily validate your artistic experience. I think if, I don't think you, I don't think it's an, a one for one trade where you have a horrible thing happen and then you're going to write a great album. You know, I think that's a, that's a, a sort of silver lining we try and find around trauma in the music industry. I think realistically, you know, one of my favorite bands, a tiny little band no one's ever heard of, they're a metal band in the, in the early 2000s. They all met in a heroin rehab center and they did this great album, it's brilliant. Um, and then they got back on the drugs and the one that followed was awful. You know, it, it's not a one-to-one -one correlation. Well, actually what worked for them was a schedule and being healthy and, and all this sort of stuff. There's a real myth in the music industry that, um, you know, getting up on time and having a routine and eating your omega-3 is somehow going to diminish your artistic capabilities because you're not living on the edge and having this wildly expressive um, experience. But I think hand in hand with that myth of sort of the rock and roll lifestyle leading to rock and roll results is this sort of unhealthy belief that, uh, you know, you can have your pedal to the floor and the engine's making loads of noise and smoke's coming out and therefore something must be getting done. The number of people I've worked with where we, you know, it can get to sort of 1am, 2am and you say, look, would we not be better served going to sleep, waking up in the morning, coming at this with fresh ears. They're like, no, we're going to keep working, no home, you know, no home till the finish line. And essentially they've got their pedal to the metal, you know, foot to the floor, but they're in first gear. It's making loads of noise. They're moving at 15 miles an hour and all that. They just think they just need to accelerate harder. I think the correlation between my industry and mental health is it's an industry in which mental health can be easily excused. It's an industry where mental health can be easily exploited. If you look at something like someone like Kurt Cobain, where it was incredibly clear to everybody that that was not a well man, but it was incredibly profitable uh, for him to not be one. Um, and there are reasons for that and many. Um, I think one of them being, one of, um, one of, I touched on this briefly in the article, but some of my favorite bands, the reason they're my favorite bands is not because they wrote enjoyable songs. It's almost the opposite. They wrote songs that were the right amount of unenjoyable for me to listen to and feel like they understood what I was going through because it sounded like what I was going through. It sounded unpleasant. It sounded difficult to listen to all this sort of stuff because of that expression that they'd given of their mental pain. And then I could listen to it and see a little bit of myself in that. I became a huge fan. Now, as an artist, what do you do if on album three, you're suddenly incredibly happy, but you've got a whole load of fans who are sort of there because they feel like you understand them. Do you write the song about the swimming pool and do you write the song about the new car and the incredible Malibu beach house? Or do you continue writing songs about the things that you find difficult? Because at that point, you're not writing songs as an entertainer. What you're doing is you're catering to a, a, an audience of people who relate to you because they have things going on. 
And if suddenly you don't anymore, it can feel like a bit of an abandonment for an artist when they suddenly go, oh, I'm fine now. And I think that sort of keeps musicians, you know, all these different aspects keep musicians in this belief that I've got to stay true to my original pain. I've got to stay true to my original confusion. That's what makes me popular. I'm going to keep working hard. I'm going to keep burning the midnight oil. You know, if I need substances to keep on this tour, I'm going to keep on this tour. If I need unhealthy habits and lifestyles to keep on this tour, I'm going to keep on this tour because I have a responsibility to other unwell people. Mm. And I think that is what sort of drives this trend towards mental health and not necessarily being the most respected uh, danger in the music industry as compared to, you know, driving without a seatbelt. <laughs> do, do you think it is a lot to do with this, um, you know, in the music industry, I can only imagine the way in which when you're on the way up, yep. you are... In your network, you, you've got a bunch of sycophants, hangers-on, people, you, you talked about exploitation, people mm. trying to exploit you, whether it's your manager taking yep. a you know, high percentage or whatever it is. And you hear so many stories of that, that journey and then they get to the top and there's very few artists that you know, carry on that trajectory no. forevermore. Five probably, years is usually, it's, a, it's about a five-year window from, from big debut to being at a date is, is, is the average lifespan of a musical artist at the very top. So how much of that is a factor? So you've got this kind of cycle and then you're financially successful. Maybe you haven't had the best advice. Mm -hmm. Then it all comes crashing down. You're not famous anymore. I mean, yep. there's so many stories, not just in music, but other areas of fame, you know, particularly this kind of flash celeb culture of mm. people being famous for five minutes and then it disappearing and they get a taste of it. How much of that is a factor at play that, that you've I mean, seen? I mean, I, it's a huge one. I think what's important about what you've pointed out there about the sort of sycophants and yes men is to a degree, the most egotistical and the most mentally unwell people I've met in my time in the industry started out as incredibly shy, self-conscious, uh, nervous people who struggled to do their best work unless they were filled with confidence by the people around them. And so it's not that you start out as a diva who's surrounded by sycophants and can't bear to hear the word no. It's that you start out as somebody who cares intensely about the quality of their music, cares intensely about the trajectory of their career, is overwhelmed with anxiety and worry that they can't do it, gets into the booth laden with all these anxieties and worries, can't do the job as well as they can when they're happy and relaxed. And what's the natural reaction of friends, supporters and true people around them? Make them feel better. Don't worry, you've got this. You're great. You're all good. And then when you get used to that network of people, you almost outsource your self-confidence. That's the problem, is it's very hard to learn how to be a naturally self-confident, secure person when you've outsourced that to the people whose mortgages you pay around you. And that's when you suddenly end up in the situation a few years later where you're surrounded by people who have lost the ability to tell you no, you know, because they know that you've not heard it in six months and that the last time you did heard it, hear it, you blew a top. It's no one's fault. No one's doing this maliciously or cynically or there is unfortunately just uh, a sort of, with the amount of ambition and the amount of hard work it takes, bearing in mind that for every musician you've heard of, there are 2,000 that have worked just as hard, harder. They've worked harder. They've cared more and they've been more talented, they just didn't get lucky. That being those musicians is incredibly mentally difficult. 
you know, you see somebody who's done a song that's very similar to yours that came out six months after yours, you're pretty sure they've, they've heard your song and pretty much ripped it off note for note. You can't prove it because it's just different enough. Um, you've been working for longer, harder, and they get the success and you don't, that's difficult. But for every musician we've heard of who's in the charts, there are thousands of musicians like that. So once you get there, the sense of obligation that you have, the sense of luck you have, people go, oh, it's your dream job. You must, you must love this. Imagine how difficult it is to, to, get, to have all those dreams come true and then turn around to a room of people for whose, whom those dreams didn't come true and go, actually, I'm having real trouble and I hate this. Imagine how ungrateful that must seem. Never thought of it like that. I mean, that's, I guess there's also, it's not just about the person standing at the microphone mm. or in that small group of people, but so many people, and, and we'll get into your story. There's the people that are behind the scenes, mm. producing it, managing, you know, going on tour, whatever, dancers. Um, are they going through, you know, what's- Everyone. What's, Everyone, but to different degrees and for different reasons, because from the artist's point of view, the performer's point of view, they see all those people around them and they know that everyone that they share a stage with, they're responsible for the rent, you know? That, do, okay. they, do, you think, do you think my perception, which may mm. be completely wrong, so educate me, is that if you're a real superstar, you don't give a shit about those people. No, you but, do, because they're your mates. You wouldn't be on tour with them if, the, if they weren't. You see, you, you share a bus with them. You, you sleep right next to them. You spend every day with them. You get to know them, even if they're a, you know, a jobbing musician just for that tour. You're aware of the fact that, I mean, jobbing musicians, fine. They're, they're slightly more flexible. But in a band, you know, if you've got a front of house sound guy who's been with you for 15 years, you know for a fact that he's got a new house because you spoke to him about it three years ago when it was brand new. And you know he's getting a conservatory done and you know if this album doesn't do well and this tour doesn't go well and he's out of a job. There's a knock-on effect. There's a knock-on effect on the entire team of people around Does it you. weigh heavy? Oh, massively. Massively. And that's, I think that's the other, the, you know, the scenario, one of the, one of the things that we struggle with in the recording industry, which is the bit that I'm in, is new hires not quite grasping the stakes you know, they think it's exciting and it's fun and they're like, wow, I'm in the studio and there's a famous person and you know, they're a millionaire and isn't this great? And I go, that millionaire is up to their eyeballs in debt and they've not had an album out for a long time and the music industry and the music scene has changed since they last put an album out. And when they, when they made that breakthrough album, what they did is they sat down and they made stuff up on the spot. They had no idea if it was good, they just liked it. They made it up. They made up a silly song and then the world turned around and went, this is great, we love you, do that again. And now they're in the position of a huge amount of capital at risk, people's jobs at risk, their whole career at risk, and they have to sit there and make up another song that's as good as the first one. And they have no idea how to do it because they weren't meaning to have a hit the first time. The, 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 the burden on the artist is insane. But then the burden on all the people around the artist is insane as well because you, you're aware of what they're going through and your job is to alleviate it. You know, and you, mistakes that you make have an effect on what, how they can do their job. It's a team effort, but it's one that at all times, because of the sort of incredibly um, first world problems degree that, you know, people go, oh, well, you've got, you know, you've got a dream job. Isn't it great? You go, there's still things that are difficult about it, but I feel, I feel like a job. It's still a job, but I, I'm yeah. not allowed to say that because I'm supposed to be incredibly grateful yeah. for the opportunity. And you are incredibly grateful for the opportunity, you know. The, the, and the, the sunk cost fallacy, the amount of work you've had to put in to get where you are, 
you look back at all the mates you've made along the way who aren't doing that, who are working in retail and hating it and going, oh my God, you know, I wish I could do what you're doing. And you, it's quite difficult to turn around to them and go, actually, I had a really, really bad day at work today. And I don't know if I want to go back. Yeah, well, try working here yeah, then. Exa- yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, that whole thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's where the, I, I actually see that connection to this whole thing around horrendous. I mean, they have to do something about it. Social media platforms. Mm. This whole online hate piece. Yeah. And, you know, that you haven't walked a mile in their shoes yeah. gives you a right to go on. They're famous, therefore I can say whatever I want oh, yeah, about yeah. that person online. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I think I don't, I don't think as humans we're designed for a audience that size, to, to be able to get feedback from an audience that size. Because we're only human and no matter how many positive comments you get, you'll find the one negative one and you'll dwell on it. You know, and I I don't think as human beings we're designed to interact with that many people on a personal level. Crowd of people's great when you're on stage because you can't hear them. But also they've paid money and they're generally there as a whole to support yeah, you yeah, and your course. performance. Yeah, yeah. Um, putting, putting anything up online now, I yeah, I I really wouldn't really wouldn't do it. Yeah, <laughs> not for me, not for me. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, in all walks of in all walks of life, as soon as you um, and let, let's actually talk about it now. Um, you, you, you talk in your article, and I encourage everyone to go and go and read it. You, you kind of lay bare your story, yeah. Yeah, and we don't have to dig in so much to that now. But I think the the one of the things is about criticism and um, and f- imposter syndrome. Mm. Oh yeah, and oh yeah, you know how prevalent that is. Oh, in terms of your side of the desk, but also. You know, for the artist as well, is that something that is I a burden think, to carry? I think that is the number one. Uh, the the th- the thing is, is something only only something only has the value that people are willing to assign to it, right? So when you start out in your industry, you know, I started out as a runner, and I'm being paid what I'm being paid, and I've you know, I don't necessarily, I'm not conscious of having learned anything. Someone just goes, do this job now instead. You don't, you don't feel any different. You don't know anything more than you did the day before. And so you go, oh, okay. And it's a lot of pressure. You sort of start doing it. You know, the amount of gratitude that you feel for that, for that step up, you know, and, that, and that, the sort of weight of expectation and that sort of, you know, oh, my God, you know, the people that were killed to do this. And there is, without a doubt, the number of people I have met who are far more talented than I am, uh, far more studious than I am, far more punctual, far more reliable, who don't have my job. The idea that I'm doing it is frankly ridiculous to me. And the idea, you know, the number of times, if I have a bad day at the studio, I will go, this is ridiculous. The only reason I'm, do- I'm being allowed to do this is because everyone's too nice to tell me I'm rubbish. <laughs> if I have a good day at the studio, I'll be like, yeah, I'm a genius, great. But those are few and far between because I'll tell you the thing I dread the most. The thing I dread the most is listening to something I worked on a year ago and liking it. Because that means in the entire time since I've learned nothing. You know, my, my, hmm. my, my, my whole thing is I have to look back on what I did earlier and see flaws and go, okay, that's good because at the time I thought it was brilliant. But I think that attitude of perpetual self-improvement and perpetual self-analysis does lend itself to, even on a good day, you're going, well, what could I have done better? And that, whilst it's healthy in a professional sense, on a personal level, does turn criticism into... I need to remember that and I need to take that to heart. 
And that's not this project, that's a me thing, that's a personalized thing. And then the line between the two can become quite blurry. Because especially as a self-employed person who's, you know, it's not like I have a job that I go to. My job is me turning up and doing my thing. Um, so if a mix is bad or a client says that they don't like a particular creative direction, I've taken something, that's a direct reflection on what I've chosen to do because of who I am. And so the line between the personal and the professional, and it, don't get me wrong, for artists, it's even worse. You know, the idea that you've written something that you think has some inherent beauty or truth to it and somebody goes, well, I think that's rubbish. And you just go, well, that means you think I'm rubbish because I meant that. How do you handle that? Oh, incredibly poorly. <laughs> so what's your, what, what's your, you know, and we, we said at the very beginning of this, this isn't, uh, this isn't a playbook no. of how anyone else should deal. Everyone has to find their coping mechanism. But what, what, what's your coping me mechanism in that sense? Because you have to, well, I know full mm. well, you, you're working through the night <laughs> until 7 a.m. Yeah. Um, I was assigned your, uh, your, uh, as your alarm clock last week to, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. What, I mean, what's, your, what's your coping mechanism with that? Because that layers in a whole load of other stresses of, you know, feeling tired and then you're juggling that with your demands of what we're doing here. I mean, so those are the, so there's, there's the interesting, so there's an interesting distinction there that, that now you've mentioned it, we'll I'll sort of touch on briefly. There's, there's the things that I do uh, primarily to help my mental health are practical and boring. Um, they're not adventurous. They're not exciting. Waking up and having a shower, right? If I've got a day off, reptile Rob wants to stay in bed like a little duvet burrito and just scroll on his phone and it'll get 10 a.m., 11 a.m., midday, one, still not leaving. He just wants to sit there and not leave the bed, not get dressed. And so I have to go... Right. Regardless of what happens within an hour of waking up, I give myself an hour to be reptile Rob. And then I have to get up and have a shower. I'm not going to want to. And I am going to accept the fact that I don't want to. I'm not going to enjoy it. I'm going to accept the fact that I'm not, I'm not going to enjoy it. And I'm not going to be ready to. I'm going to accept the fact that I will never be ready to. I'm just going to do it despite what everything I feel. Come out of the shower, different person. Reptile Rob's washed away down the drain. I've got a day. If I don't do that very specific step, whole day is gone. I won't leave bed till 5 p.m. Do you, do you manifest it then at the end of the day? Because I've done the same. <laughs> done the, same. Burri the burrito image will not yeah, be. Yeah. And you go, oh, my God, I've wasted the day. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And then you feel like you feel like an absolute, you know, I'll open the fridge and I'll be like, oh, you bought plums and you didn't eat them and now they've gone off, you waste of a person. Oh, look at this salad that you've not eaten. Look, it's gone brown. Throw that in the bin. The whole day is ruined. If I get up and have a shower and go for a walk and brush my teeth and simple things like that, the basics of, of sort of humanity are incredibly important. Getting dressed and having had a shower will completely change how I feel at 9 p.m. Do, 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 so you've shared that now uh, and it's very you know, admirable of you to share it in a public domain like that. Because I think quite a lot of people struggle to share their coping mechanism. But something I th that I think is universal is having those confidants and those people close to you mm. where you do share what your routine is that is your activation, your switch. So do you agree? I do. I, I And I, again, I touch on this in, in the article. 
you know, birds of a feather flocking together and all that. A lot of my friends also struggle and we're open about that with each other. And, you know, do you help each other? Do you, do you oh, go, have you, have you had your shower? Yeah, yeah. We do, we do all that, we do all that stuff. I had a friend, uh, Tuesday last week, you know, with a suicide attempt. It was all serious. We all sorted it. Um, but that's, you know, we've got WhatsApp groups and the, do you know, the best thing about the WhatsApp group is if, if you, if you, especially pandemic times, the thing that I found most useful for dealing with socialization, loneliness, and depression is a WhatsApp group full of the people I know who've got the best sense of humor to just be terrible, terrible people with It's the <laughs> best thing. If you're feeling a bit low, just find, find like a short gif of a toddler falling over, send it to your worst mates and have a bit of a giggle is one of the best coping mechanisms I've had. And one of the, one of the best things about a group rather than a, a, a designated person. Doesn't rely on one person exactly. to be that. Exactly. Yeah. If whoever's free. So if there's 10 people in the group, you can guarantee you'll send a message and somebody will get back to you with some human contact. That's a hu um, tremendously useful coping mechanism I use. Getting up, getting dressed, starting the day, even if I'm just going to sit and watch Line of Duty at you know, midday, don't care going to eat a Nando's at 2, 2 p.m. Don't care. I'm up. I'm dressed. I'm clean. I'm able to do stuff. But with the hours thing that you're talking about, that's where the practical problems come in. Yeah, what is your 9 a.m.? I don't. I don't have one. Theoretically, I don't have one. Yeah. So tonight, I got up this morning at 8, got here for half nine. Show off. <laughs> first time in six months mate i almost <laughs> fell over when i walked in earlier i mean i'm not a morning person by any stretch this is, this but is i almost collapsed on the this floor is, when this, i saw this you this is the first there. shift i've done in a while where i've not been working the night previously but yeah. tonight i've got an 8 p.m start with a uk drill wrapper i'll go through to 7 a.m and i'll get home at sort of 8 a.m and i'll have to go to sleep i mean is it a rule that you can't record drill in the hours of light I must Surely, be. Maybe. It must be. There must be some sort of it's UK culture secretary <laughs> edict passed down. <laughs> it's you know, it's fine to record it, but not when the sun is in the sky. Yeah, I mean that is it, it is challenging to almost have that clock. It's almost like um, jet lag. Oh no, so I'm, I'm I'm permanently jet lagged. But I but I think that's a that's a situation unique to being an engineer and and, and doing studio recording. I think for anyone else, you know, the things that have helped me the most and the things that I look forward to the most are the boring things. They're not exciting. They're not adventurous. They're not cool. Brushing your teeth, having a shower. And ridiculously, those are the things that are most helpful. And if I were able to have a routine, oh, my God, I'd hate it. I'd hate every second of it. But my God, I would enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's pivot to music and as a coping mechanism. Mm. And I think in two ways, um, you talk very passionately about how you felt you owed something. Oh yeah. To music because oh. of something in your earlier life. And then you wanted to be part of that. Talk us through that. Tell us that little bit of your story. Well, I, th I think, I don't think it's my story. I think it's everyone's story. I think there's that, that period of time when we're like a year into our own music right? You listen to what your parents listen to. They've got their records. You're like, yeah, this is great. I love soft sell. And then, and then you start finding your own music. And inevitably there's about a year of some really terrible musical decisions. You get some really embarrassing hoodies that you throw away a year later being like, oh, I never liked them. <laughs> but you know, maybe two years into your own sort of personal music journey, you'll hear a song and you'll be like, this is part of me now. You'll have had it. Everyone here will have had it. There'll come a point where you listen to something and you go, this isn't just a song. This is a part of something more. 
um, and they inevitably shape the way you you deal with things. You know, I, I think I think a lot of my understanding of the world came through people telling me how they felt in song and me understanding it and going, I get that now. And even when I didn't get it, I'd, you know, keep listening to it and I go, oh, okay, I, I kind of get it. And then 10 years later, when I listen to it again for the first time, I'm like, oh, okay, now I get it. <laughs> you know, I, but that, that sort of level of communication, that sort of sub-verbal communication between two people that can go across, you know, half the planet or whatever is an incredibly special thing. I'm, I remember, and this is super cheesy, but I'll, I'll touch on it briefly. For my 25th birthday, my mum bought me a wind-up 1920s gramophone, right? That's a cool gift. It's a cool gift, right? With a box of old 78 Shalak records. And I remember the first time I wound it up. There's no plug, no electricity, anything. It's incredibly loud. It's just using mechanics. You know, it's a needle getting wobbled onto a little plastic diaphragm that goes through a series of tubes and comes out incredibly loud. Doesn't sound that great, but it's impressive. There's no electricity involved. And all the records there were from like the 1930s. And it struck me, I was listening to this song about this woman singing about this, this lover that she had that didn't love her back and she was sad. And it struck me that she was dead. She died, you know, at the age of 70 in sort of 1986. But the person who taught her how to sing and where the studio was and how long it took her to get there that morning and, you know, what she'd had for breakfast, this relationship, how it turned out, who helped her write the lyrics, because all the lyrics were sort of co-written back then, all of those things contributed to this little sculpture of air molecules that had been made in a room way back when in 1930, whenever. And somebody had come along with a recording device and captured that and then... Long after she died, I, a complete stranger, could listen to it and have some small understanding of how another human being felt 20 years after they died. And if that's not Harry Potter-level magic, there isn't any, right? That is legitimately magic. So the idea that that can exist and I can use resistors and transistors and electrical stuff to help conjure these little Corcrux ghosts, of course I'm going to work in that. You're an idiot if you don't want to. Like, it's incredible. You're saving little bits of people for future posterity using physics. Hell yeah. That was kind of my, my, my in point to music. And the idea that I can feel a certain way, you know, I can feel incredibly terrible, and I've got someone like Elliot Smith, who definitely had better reasons to feel terrible than I did, sing me a song about how he's feeling better. I'm like, yeah, so am I now, mate. Thanks. <laughs> it's, I love it. I absolutely love that story and just the whole kind of capture of that moment and the yeah. amalgamation of what created that that moment which you are now listening to yeah. an etched bit of plastic. plastic. Yeah. Which is ridiculous. The it's idea that you can save human expression carved into a bit of plastic. Yeah, that's incredible. The um I know exactly what you mean about your your journey of music and who you So I, the first artist that I ever yeah. saw live was Curtis Steigers. I've never even heard of Curtis Steigers. You, you, I, I guarantee you, if you looked up Curtis Steigers, right, you would love his music. So he's he was a he was a jazz he was a jazz star. Oh, and he nice. had a pop and then he had a pop yeah. career. Incredible saxophonist. Oh, nice. And we went to see him at the Manchester Apollo with my parents. Yes. And uh, and now he he's he's always been performing jazz mm. at the Stables Theatre in Milton Keynes, which is a yeah. great little venue, and at Ronnie Scott's just around Lovely. the corner. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he's back doing, he's doing sets in his kitchen with his dogs behind <laughs> Amazing. him. Amazing. And I was listening to it the other day. He's, he's absolutely incredible. But then, then it evolved. Then I was like, oh, Jamiroquai, yeah, I like that guy in the hat. And yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Had, a, had a Jamiroquai fleece 
which oh, right now would be seen dead yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's funny that that journey through, th- and then I you think, find I think your it's own. It's a universal one. Yeah. But at some point, you find a musician who tells you things about yourself that you knew but didn't have the words for. Yes. And I think those those are the moments that you end up feeling like you have to repay when somebody's helped you articulate who you are in better words than you could have ever found for yourself. Um, those are the moments for me that, that, that make music the, the sort of magical thing that it is. Is it a special moment? Because obviously you, you, you work with many different artists, many mm-hmm. different genres, but you talk in the article about a particular uh, relationship with, mm-hmm. a, with, with an artist um, or band that means something particularly special to you about, I guess, arriving at in your own journey and feeling like you'd you'd got to that level where you're like now I'm contributing. Yeah, I think I think there's an there's an interesting uh, and again I'm, I use this analogy all the time, so I apologise if I use it before. But but in the studio world, it's not your song, right? It's not your kid. So you're sort of the midwife to the whole situation. It's your job to help this other person deliver their baby safely and painlessly, but you're not there to tell them whether you sh- they should raise it Catholic or, you know, they're the one that's going to have to sit next to it for the next 18 years as that song develops. Um, it's not your song. Yes. But there's a point when the artist will turn around and look at you and go, what do you think? And you're like, oh, okay, I do deserve to be here. That's, that's good. And I think, you know, it's something that takes a while. And I don't know whether or not that's because, you know, turning around to a 22-year-old greasy mustachioed boy with blue hair being like what do you think he's like um i think it's not gonna happen i think maybe it's a function of age but it's also a function of you know the the time i've been doing it it's it's nice that people now ask me for their opinion and i tell them my opinion and they listen and they incorporate it whereas previously it was please just press the buttons i know what i'm doing (laughs) are you allowed to talk about that moment where where you kind of flipped from from being the um the assistant engineer to being the I mean, that was, a, that was a strange one. So that was, uh, I was assisting at the incredible Rack Studios, which um, was established by Mickey Most, the 1960s uh, recording producer, who made so much money in one year that his accountant basically said, look, you can pay this much in tax or you can spend it. So he bought, <laughs> he bought, he bought a street in St. John's Wood, um, house by house. Uh, one was a sort of ballet studio, but built... Possibly one of the best recording, in my opinion, one of the best recording facilities in the world. Um, and I was incredibly fortunate to, to land there as a T-boy and a runner and, and then as an assistant. Um, and the thing is with a place like Rack is once you're there, you're never going to leave. There's no reason to leave. So the people that were ahead of me in the sort of studio hierarchy had been there for years and would, had no intention of going anywhere. Um, and then... Chasing Status, who had just come off the back of an incredibly successful album called No More Idols, came along, worked with me and said, we've got our own studio, do you want to engineer it? And I was like, oh, I'll just check my calendar. I was like, oh, yeah, appeared to be free. <laughs> um, and that was, a, that was an odd, again, talk about imposter syndrome. You know, they showed me the mixing desk. They're like, have you you've used this before? I was like, yeah, yeah, I've used it before. Googling the manual. Like, oh, yeah, I can do this. Um, and sort of started engineering for them. And then, you know, start working, start on album three. It's all going all right. What year was that? That was 2014, 15. So no, why is it? No, it was earlier than that. If I'm honest, I can't remember. <laughs> but, but so and why is it then? 
with that validation and all of the validation since what, why is it? And I, I, I mm. this is more of a kind of a rhetorical question yeah, yeah. rather than something. Cause, cause I don't know the answer no. to it. Why is it that you and we and anyone continue that perpetual self doubt and imposter syndrome because you've had the validation. Surely you are what you are. I think there, there's the two schools of thought, isn't there? There's the, and this is the, what's funny is there's the cognitive dissonance that I hold where I always say to my assistants now that I've got assistants and stuff, I'm like, if I ask you to do something and you can't do it, that's on me. You know, if I ask you to lift that and it's twice your body weight, it's on me for asking you to have done it. All I need you to do is give me an accurate assessment of what you can and can't do. And I'll, I'll run with that. You know, if, we, if we're going to record to tape and you've never done it, just tell me and we can, we'll, we'll work with that. Worst thing you can do is pretend like you've worked on it for 15 years and then before you know it, it's wrapped around your neck and you, I'm having to prize you free of the track 24. You know, it's, let's not do that. That's an opinion I hold for them. But for me, I'm like, no, no, no. It's my responsibility to be up to scratch. If somebody asks me to do something and I can't do it, it's my failure for not having been prepared enough. It's a funny cognitive dissonance that I hold there. And I, I see the hypocrisy of it. As to, as to why I think the validation never counts, I think, I think it's because it's whether or not that validation is deserved. And I think that's the thing. If you never feel like you deserve the validation, then you never get to reap the benefits of the self-confidence mm. that follow. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I think um, it's all, we, 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 we all on a constant pursuit of trying to be better or yeah. get through whatever we're trying to do. I think, and yeah. On that point, and again, this is not my point, it's a, it's a far cleverer writer's point than mine, but I think there is, a, there is a unique problem that we have in society today, which is the meritocracy, which is if you work hard and you're good and you believe in yourself, you're going to do great. You know, Mark Zuckerberg had a great idea and he worked hard and he got the right investors and look at him now. Elon Musk, rags to, that, that obsession with the rags to riches story. And we love it because it, it ignores classism, it ignores racism, it ignores all the problems that we have in society. And it just says it's about if you're good or if you're not. You know, what unhelpful about what's helpful about it is it helps you believe that the people at the top deserve to be there. That guy's a multi-billionaire because he had a good idea and he worked really hard. And therefore it's not unfair. Where it becomes difficult is when you're not a multi-millionaire and you're not doing as well as you want, rather than that being bad luck bad circumstances, bad socioeconomic background, all the things that you have no control over, it places all of the moral responsibility on you. You didn't work hard enough. Your ideas weren't good enough. That's why you're struggling financially right now because these guys over here, rags to riches stories that we love to icon, you know, deify. Oh, you know, Jay-Z started out with nothing and he just had great songs and, you know, self-made. The idea of a self-made person is incredibly damaging. Yeah, because no one is, no one is. We've all got opportunities and leg ups and things that other people well, don't. Well, it's, it's 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 network, it's timing, it's it's a million know, and one things. It's 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 a lucky break. Mm. I think there's another thing. I think there's a bit of a, and I don't really buy into it. And there's this culture of hate towards people that have been that are yeah. successful. I don't buy into that at all. No, they're successful. Maybe they got you know. Maybe they already had money, yeah. but let's not hate on those people. No, no. Let's fix the problems that underpin why people can't be successful when they have a lot to contribute. Of course. Or, or 
they're struggling to find their way that they contribute. There's this kind of cookie cutter. Everybody should go through life yeah. in this formulaic way. Then you do this, then you attend uni, then you figure, you've you got it all figured out by the time you're 16 and the way you go, your, your career's off and running. And it's Again, nonsense. Yeah. It, it ties back to that idea of, of productivity as a moral virtue, which is inherently problematic. It's that thing of this person's working harder, aren't they a good person? And I think that's where it becomes problematic mm. because, of course we shouldn't vilify people at the top who've succeeded. You know, I wish them all the best and, and what an incredible, if they can do it, so can anybody. And I, I see all the benefits of the rags to riches myth. Of course I do. But it's, I think it's naive to not see the other side of the coin and say, what damage is this causing when we say anybody can make it? Because what we're actually saying is if anybody can make it, the reason you haven't is because you don't have enough of the moral virtue of productivity. Yeah, which is a complete nonsense again. I think, um, you know, a lot of it's down to luck. Oh. Yeah, you can make your own I luck. Think you a huge amounts of it are down to luck. Yeah. Huge amounts. And there's nothing wrong with that. And people, people, nobody chooses where they're born. You do not, you know, nobody is, should be made to feel bad for being born into privilege or lack of it. Yeah. But to use them comparatively and say, well, that person is more productive than you. Of course they are. Maybe that's it, though. Maybe it's the comparison that's the dangerous yeah. thing. It's you're always trying to validate yourself versus someone else. Have I got more mm -hmm. followers? Which Did comes back to likes? the social media thing of yeah. the, the pool of people to which you would now compare yourself to is that much larger. Yes. It's not just keeping up with the Joneses. It's keeping up with the entire street. Yes. Um, I want to wrap up in a second. We're, sure. We've... we've um, taken far too much of your time oh. and you have an important session that you're recording <laughs> for tonight which we go through till 7 a.m which I, mate, I don't know how you do that um you, you make this point in your in your uh, and it, you know i think you you argue against it and that is that great art takes great sacrifice mm. um but in your head great sacrifice therefore must automatically create great art just I talk think, about that second i think i think <laughs> this is a, a great quote i think for a long time that's that's been the prevailing myth you know, it comes back to that thing I said earlier, you know, oh, you know, Van Gogh, oh, what a horrible life he had, but what great art we got out of it. And I'm like, well, did you see the art he would have made if he'd had a nice life? You know, like, oh, Beethoven, oh, such a tortured soul. Like, what great, what great music we got from his pain. I'm like, well, we don't know because we don't know what he would have written if he'd actually been all right, <laughs> you know. I mean, a lot of those people weren't famous or no, wealthy exactly. or anything when they were alive. Their, no. their, their fame and their wealth has happened since Long because since they after, became yeah. classics. 100%. Van Gogh, as far as Van Gogh knows, he died penniless and unappreciated and hated. Yeah. You know, um, but that, that myth that, that, you know, great art requires great sacrifice uh, and therefore great sacrifice must equal great art has been, I think, the prevailing mistake that I've seen most musicians make. You know, the, the, the idea that the long way around, the painful way around will be worth it in the end because great sacrifice equals great art. And it's just not true, especially, you know, I've, I've had the privilege of working with people like Nile Rogers, who just goes, oh, yeah, I wrote that in 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. You know, and he goes, and I it's mean, not, he's a beast. He yeah, just, like, he, turns you know, out a, a, a no, 100%, catchy 100%. But then he's gone, you know, there's been other songs and I didn't even think it was that good. I just let it go. And then there's been other songs that I, I was sure were a hit, you know, and I laboured over them for six months and they just disappeared without a trace. You know, I think, I think some, art, some art just falls in your lap from the sky and you can't question it. Other art, you've got to dig from the frozen ground with your bare hands. It, but there's not a correlation between the way you make it and the way it does. 
that's the great roulette wheel of destiny and, and user preference and all that sort of stuff. The idea that, you know, the harder I work, the better this art will be, I think is a complete fallacy. And I think is also a, a wider fallacy that, that people in any, any industry take. You know, well, you know, because this, is, because this is painful to me, it must have value. It's like, well, maybe you're just doing it a painful way and you could reevaluate and go, does anyone else care as much as I do? You know, does anybody else worry about, you know, the amount of time that people worry about, oh, such and such thinks this, when really they're just whistling show tunes. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's another sort of unhealthy, healthy observation. There's no one's thinking about anyone else all that often. Yeah, (laughs) that's so true. Um, Just to finish up, you, you've done a playlist for us. I have, yes. Tell, tell us a few little highlights then people can go oh, and dig in and explore themselves. So it's got my sad boy anthems in there. It's got my... What's your top is, sad boy anthem? Oh, anything by Elliot Smith. Elliot Smith, yeah. Elliot Smith is the most underrated songwriter of the last century. He is incredible. Um, he has a way of weaving the mundane details of life. He's got a fantastic song where he talks about... He's talking about this sad thing that happened and then he just starts talking about the telly. And he's like, and on the telly, there's a guy who was famous for like a year, 10 years ago, and he was going to be the next big thing, but he's just, no one even knows what he's doing. He just disappeared. That can happen to you. Yeah. And it's, it's such a sort of, in the wider context of the song, that sort of, you know, that sort of observation, such a mundane thing that he's seen a guy on the telly that he doesn't know the name of anymore. But he weaves it into the song brilliantly. So Elliot Smith, sad boy, hero. Um, and incredibly optimistic once you get through the initial sound. A bit of Radiohead, because who doesn't love Radiohead? Yeah. Moving through to uh, more happy bops. It's very much, a, listen to it in sequence, start off in a bad mood, and I guarantee you, if you're still in a bad mood by the time the playlist is over, you are dead inside. <laughs> <laughs> that is a guarantee from Rob McFarlane. Rob, I, I think um, just to say thank you for doing this, I think in terms of your contribution to iris you know you're loved and appreciated and you just bring so much energy and joy and i know one of your coping mechanisms is to turn everything into dark humor which <laughs> to be honest you've 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 filtered very ably on every i always time. i always filter for the public we yeah. might like we might dial the filter down a little bit and let people see the the let, darker side yeah. it only needs I mean, to go you're hilarious ha- only needs to go wrong <laughs> once mate only needs to go wrong once <laughs> taken off air yeah <laughs> the iris pod will be cancelled um no thank you so much Absolutely for everything pleasure. you do for us and uh, good luck tonight in the studio i'll need it all right thanks so much mate. thank you